Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome to God's Planning. I'm Father Gregory Pine here, uh, checking in from the Dominican House of Studies, and I'm joined by Father Patrick Briscoe uh, up in Providence, Rhode Island. How are things going, Father Patrick? In Providence, we be Providence in. <laughs> At my into providence <laughs> yeah in ing form uh note it you heard it here first uh phrase no i'm sorry there was no g in providence in oh okay got it uh, that's that ends with an i in apostrophe for those who are taking notes uh <laughs> father patrick you are up there in providence and you have a few ministries uh you are let's see you're at saint Pius the fifth parish you're also teaching at providence college and uh also um, working for Alatea or working with Alatea. Do you mind telling us actually about the last thing, Alatea, a little bit? I, I don't know a ton about it. Uh, I suspect Ooh, people are interested. Absolutely. Alatea, um, alatea.org. Alatea is the Greek word for truth, so that's the origin of the name. But Alatea is a Catholic news and spirituality site. And um, one, of, one of the found, foundational principles, uh, fundamental principles uh, about Alatea is that we found so much news is very contentious today. We work very intentionally to be very positive, very uplifting. So um, we're creating a kind of lifestyle Catholic news that is full, filled with encouraging and inspiring stories. That's kind of our, that's kind of the gist of what we are. So check us out at Alatea, A-L-E-T-E-I-A dot org. That sounds great. I think a lot of people... Um, especially feel that they should be up to date or uh, at least decently abreast of what's going on in the world. But sometimes it can be a little bit stressful to look at ordinary news organs because yeah, everything is just kind of very contentious or very polemical. So that's awesome that there is a resource like that. Um, yeah. That, that affords you the opportunity to know what's going on without feeling depressed or angry. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Well, well distinguished. It's almost like you're a traveling Thomas salesman. Oh, what's going on? Um, now you're also teaching at Providence college. You're teaching one class, two classes. How many classes? One hat. I teach in the Western civilization program, which is the core curriculum at PC. It's a really great program. we we read through, um, texts of the ancient world and it's a historical sequence that every student at the college takes. So we start um, with ancient works like Gilgamesh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, excerpts of the New and Old Testament, St. Augustine's Confessions. Well, that's much newer compared to some of those other things. And we work all the way through um, the Middle Ages and uh, the revolutionary era, if you will, of modernity. Um, so that's, a, that's the core curriculum. And one thing that I like about it is that it's team taught. It's an interesting. It's an interesting approach to a classroom, because um, you're sharing the organization of the class and the goal and vision of the class with other teachers. And um, the last aspect I would say that's a critical part of the DWC curriculum, um, the Western Civilization curriculum at Providence College, is that there's a seminar component. So students in, um, learn background material about the text in the classroom presented by one of the professors in lecture, and then engage the material in, a, in perhaps a more immediate way during seminar discussion. Nice. So I think during the course of this episode, uh, we're hoping to talk a little bit about teaching, but I think uh, a good way to get into that discussion is to hone in on what makes for a good seminar. Because I know a lot of people have had the experience of being in a seminar or a Bible study or an adult faith formation class, which <laughs> encourages discussion or encourages 
audience participation. And many find it frustrating because sometimes it can be a little bit like a crisis of truth where you don't know is the truth in the book, is the truth in your teacher, is the truth in your discussion, is the truth in your classmates, is the truth in you. So in your experience of conducting this class, what makes for a good discussion? What makes for a good seminar? Right. Well, I would say one of the first things that I always try and do um, when, when we open the seminar is I try and find out where, where students have engaged the text. And I ask them, what did you like about the reading? Which is my gentle way of asking, did you do the reading? <laughs> what, can you, what can you say about the reading in the most generic and accessible way possible? Uh, what, what, what struck you? What, what comes off the page at you? Right? Um, people who are familiar with the practice of Lexio Divina um, might be able to think of engaging seminar in that way. So, so you, have to, you have to start with something that is remembered uh, or recalled by the reader and then, and then begin to pry it open with questions. Okay. So I think, I think an important part of seminar is what people call the Socratic method. Right? Socrates was that notorious gadfly, as he called himself. He had to encourage the noble steed of Athens forward. Sometimes, according to his own account, the steed of Athens was reluctant to move, so he had to fly around it like a gadfly and bother with questions and, and provoke it and prompt it. So I think asking, asking questions of the text is critical, um, and how the questions are formulated, of course, is what, um, is, what, is what gives it that approach. But ultimately, you have to be an expert. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. Have you been in, in situations like that yourself, Father Gregory, where you've just been stuck in a in a kind of classroom setting or in a Bible study? Uh, so I guess I've had experiences both as a student and then as a teacher. And um, I have had profitable and unprofitable experiences. So ones that have been both encouraging and frustrating. I remember being in a, a great books course. And I remember thinking that this is really only as good as uh, the conversation that we generate. And the conversation that we generate is really only as good as our insights. So I had the distinct impression that like, unless you've done the preparation, unless you've had an experience of life that's pretty wide and rich, and unless you have somebody to educate you in, you know, argumentation or discussion or whatever you might describe it as, this can be really, really frustrating because, be, you know, for, in my case, I went to a Catholic school and a lot of people had like read the Lord of the Rings. And so they were drawing tenuous connections between like book seven of the Iliad where Diomedes fights the gods, you know, and like the battle of Helm's <laughs> Deep. And I was like, sweet Christmas, save me from this bad, bad conversation. Um, because I had the distinct impression that with these texts, that there's something on offer, uh, and that like these have been prized and treasured by Western civilization for a reason. And I feel like it's on the tip of my tongue or it's just barely eluding me or just beyond my grasp and I want access to it. And, but, but I need somebody to teach me. Um, so it's precisely when that kind of urgent question has been formulated that I think you're primed for a teacher to come in, an expert, like you said. In some ways, it kind of begs that it, it begs this important philosophical question about what what a teacher can do and what you, the student, have to do on your own. Um, you know, some people like Thomas Aquinas find themselves asking very seriously: Is it possible to even teach? Yeah. Can there can there be such a thing as a teacher? Right? Is 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 teaching accessible, or is the process of learning um, completely interminable? Must it all be done by the student? Um, and I, I think that that, that experience of a, of, a, of a kind of difficult Bible study or, or, or a rough and unengaging seminar um, asks that, that, that key question that, mm, that really gets at that, that central issue. Yeah. I, I taught one class at Bellarmine University while I was assigned in Louisville, Kentucky. And um, <clears throat> the way 
I had billed the class was, I called it Aquinas and argument. So materially, it was about the faith, you know, like you're supposed to learn Catholic social teaching as it was described in the course description. Um, but uh, formally, I said, this is about argumentation. So I wanted them to learn how to argue well and actually exchange insights and formulate, um, you know, like syllogisms uh, rather than just asserting or um, trying to convince or persuade. Uh, what it eventually even making distinctions like you yourself just did. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to, I want, basically I wanted to teach them the Catholic faith and I wanted it to be a fact, like kind of an apologetics course so that they realized that the faith had reasons and that the faith had arguments that it could marshal in its defense. And the way that we did most classes was there was a student who gave a 10 to 12 minute presentation, just kind of plot summary and then what they found interesting. And then we just began with all of their questions. Uh, and then we just wrote them on the board and then we cobbled together a lecture from that. And the lecture wasn't always comprehensive and it didn't cover necessarily what, what merited consideration, but it started with their questions. And um, I feel like, you know, there were many ways in which it was, you know, bad, but uh, there are also ways in which it was good. And I think that was probably the best part that it, that it actually began with a question. And so this like brings us, like you said, whether or not it's possible to teach or whether it's possible to learn by any way other than discovery. But I think this, this, this point here about formulating a question is, is super important. We have a brother, Father Peter John Cameron, who says the most boring thing in the world is the answer to a question that has never been asked. And so I think like uh, we, should, we can zoom in here on, on teaching as somehow responding to a question. So what is it that like a teacher does? How is he helping his student to discover? How is he helping him to formulate a question? What has your experience been of that? Right. Well, um, the other experience, uh, well, other description rather of Socrates, I gave the one that he was like a gadfly, right? Well, the, the other famous description he gives of himself is as a midwife mm. that he's who helps give birth to ideas. Um, in the platonic tradition, according to Plato, that's a little bit different because ideas aren't, aren't really learned. They're just recalled. They've already been known. And the, the midwife is the one who allows the ideas to be remembered. Um, for us, technically, it would mean something different. Anyway, I think that there's something, there's something to, there's something still to what Socrates is saying, even if I would quibble with the technicalities of Platonism. Um, there's something to what Socrates is saying, that the midwife is the one who helps give birth to ideas. Um, St. Albert the Great called his students his socii. Uh, do you want to explain, Father Gregory, what a socius is? Sure thing. Uh, so in the tradition of the order, you have people that occupy certain offices. Maybe they're in charge of the whole order, or maybe they're in charge of a particular province or a particular convent. And usually they have a socius, which just means a companion. So somebody who accompanies them to, to big meetings or somebody who helps them make big decisions. So it's, um, it's a, a beautiful tradition of the order that wherever you go, you go two by two because part of like Christian testimony is, is friendship. Uh, and there's this kind of real uh, apostolic sense at the heart of the order that, that the Lord didn't send men alone. He sent them together. So that's awesome that St. Albert would call his students his soci. Soci, soci nostri. And in fact, his commentaries are written in answer to their prayers, their supplications, their questions, which is not atypical of medieval or other commentaries. But, but, uh, but what Albert was doing was responding to um, responding to needs. Being in the classroom too gives a certain energy. So it's something that the, that the teacher can feel, right? Maybe, maybe you, um, maybe you've had the experience of giving a presentation that, that just kind of misses the mark and you think, hmm, I asked the wrong question or, or, or I've had the experience of showing up to a retreat 
with something prepared. And then I look around the room and I see an entirely different audience there than I was imagining. Mm. And um, I've selected to prepare anew the content I was going to offer or, you know, any kind of occasion where I've been asked to preach. I've, I've, I've now done that many, many times uh, where, where I've completely revised what I was going to say based on what I thought um, or, or actually even heard um, coming from the audience. So it does. So, so the questions and, and the concerns of, of, of who, who is doing the exploring have to be met by teachers. And um, the, re the reality is that that gives the teacher life. I had one, one professor one time describe uh, himself and other colleagues as vampires who suck the life from the student. <laughs> <laughs> now, that, now that's a bit pejorative, but, uh, but there's something to the, the questions of students that, dr that drive the work of the teacher where the teacher... Um, she can give the wisdom that she's had um, forward. Yeah, and I think um, just to, to kind of bring that back to this notion of soci, I think there's a sense in which um, the teacher accompanies the student through the act of discovery, through the act of learning, uh, and in so doing, he or she accompanies the student at, at every stage. So if you just think, how do we ordinarily come to know things? Well, we have like an experience of the world, Maybe you're walking down the street and you see like a basset hound. You're like, oh, fascinating. And then you pass by, you know, a schnauzer and you're like, ooh, doubly so, you know. And, and now this idea of what a dog is is coming together in your mind. And then you're, you see like a cat and it's being all coy and like wildly uninterested in your existence. And it seems to think like this, this human being could die and I wouldn't give the slightest care. And you're like, okay. So like a dog is not a cat because like dogs like people and cats are just stuck up. So you're like making judgments as to what's available. And then you start like reasoning from that. Like if I were to get a pet, you know, let's say like hypothetically, if I weren't allergic to these things, I would probably get a dog because I like companionship and I don't really have to like want to work for the affection of my pet because that's why I bought it, you know? So like <laughs> you go through this process where you're, you're taking things in, you're making initial judgments and then you're formulating like, you know, you're reasoning through the steps and at each stage, um, a teacher is able to help you in that. So they're able to broaden your experience of life, to tell you about places you haven't seen or things in life that, that just haven't come up for you because you're younger maybe. Um, and then they help you formulate judgments. So like maybe you're a really uh, impetuous youth, you know, and you judge things like that, that cat, I hate that cat because that cat turned away from me. He said, well, you know, be patient. The cat can be very affectionate if you give it time, you know? And then like reasoning, it's like, well, I definitely want a dog and I don't want a cat. He's like, well, before you make that, you know, choice, you might want to think about the destruction that the cat caught, you know, dot, dot, dot. So like at each stage, the teacher is helping you to kind of like apprehend what's going on, to make judgments regarding it, and then to reason through it. So there's a sense in which you're doing the discovery, but, but always aided by the teacher who helps you through. Mm. So I think like with just, yeah, just kind of like a basic sense that what is going on effectively is, yeah, like what you said, like midwifery, you know, you're, you're, you're bringing to birth something that is already gestating in the heart of the human being um, or associate. You are serving as a friend and a kind of act of accompaniment. Um, and yeah, it's just very beautiful, but your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And there's something about, um, there, there, there's something of one of the, one of the deepest mysteries of, of human life at effect, right? Um, a good teacher is someone who loves the truth. Mm -hmm. Um, love is of course, when you're able to, to delight in the same thing, um, with someone, um, in a kind of present sense, right? Uh, joy, joy is that, that, 
reality of the delightful thing being really present. Um, I'm not talking about charity, which is to will the good of another, <laughs> but, but if we talk about love, you know, delighting in something, um, a teacher is, is the kind of person that can stand by you as if you were gazing at a painting, right? And point out features that you yourself perhaps didn't see, but enjoyed being present before the thing alongside you. Mm-hmm. How's that? Yes. That's, I like that. That's a very beautiful description. With that, let's let that resonate a bit. Let's take a short break here. Uh, we'll be back shortly to pick up the conversation. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. All right. Welcome back to God's Planning. I'm here with Father Patrick Briscoe. I myself am Father Gregory Pine, and uh, we're talking about teaching and learning, teaching things and learning things. So I thought uh, maybe we could talk just a little bit about some teachers uh, who we have had or who have taught us in the past. And what, what about them was distinctive or what about them left a mark? So in your experience, are there particular teachers that come to mind as especially excellent or especially you know, formative? Well, for me, the most, the most important teacher I've had in my life was a Dominican friar named Father Andrew Cyril Fabian. O.P. <laughs> very, every, everything about Father was distinct um, from his pedagogical methods to the very way he spoke. Uh, but he, he was someone, he was someone who, who delighted in being with students. When I had Father Fabian, he was in his 80s. Um, he had been teaching for decades at St. Mary's University in Minnesota. And Father um, embodied the best of the Dominican tradition. He taught me to love my buddy boy, Aristotle. (laughs) And, uh, of course, the great St. Thomas Aquinas. And it was by knowing Father and being a student in his class that I I found my Dominican vocation, um, even after being interested in the priesthood. So so I owe owe Father Fabian a lot. Um, One of the most delightful things about him, though, was how how quick-witted he was. You know, for example, we would jostle Father walking up the stairs. He insisted on taking the stairs up to his office for a very long time, even after there was an elevator in Old St. Mary's Hall. So we would jostle Father on the stairs, which isn't the best thing. You know, like, oh, he used to casually mess with an 80-year-old man as he was walking up the stairs carrying his briefcase. But yeah, there we did, you know. We are college, too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Father would come back with things, you know, and say things like, um, the gospel says, be childlike, not childish. <laughs> and so he, he, he had all these little sayings um, that, that, that were inspiring. And he had a way of, he had a way of just instilling principles uh, pull, pulled out of philosophy that were, that were just so key that looking back, you know, I, I've really continued to find their richness. So for me, for me that, great, that great teacher was Father Fabian. Um, you know, and he was wonderful because he he presented um, the best of ideas and uh, great people to me. But 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 he embodied something. He embodied this whole Dominican tradition, and and I I found I found something of what I longed to be in him. Hmm. Yeah, I love I like that image a lot. I had a similar experience in college with a particular professor um, named Maria Seifert. And um, I came to discover recently that like when I was 19, you know, a sophomore in college, I think she was like 26 or 27. That's like, she was like a horse babysitting (laughs) your dog. Exactly. I was like, how did the university let this arrangement happen? You know, it's crazy. (laughs) You know, she's just like a slightly older teenager. 
Uh, not entirely true, but you get the point. Um, <laughs> so um, I had her for three philosophy classes, and I was studying at the Franciscan University's campus in Gaming, Austria at the time. And so it was a particularly intense time of formation where you have, you're, you're just 160 students, you're forming these really excellent friendships with people whom you had kind of known the year before, but not especially well. Um, and there's a kind of contemplative atmosphere to the setting because you're studying in a Carthusian monastery um, and everyone's studying philosophy and theology. So everyone is having big conversations, regardless of whether you're a business major or an economics major or communications arts major, everyone's talking about these big questions. And I had her for anthropology, for ethics and for metaphysics. And um, the thing that I think was most so not unlike your description of uh, Father Fabian, she was very interested in the welfare of the students. Um, and she communicated that uh, every day. And it could be something where it was like tough love, where she'd be like, you look like a mess. All right. Don't ever wear pajamas to my class again. Or closed-toed shoes and dress like a normal human being. Be like, okay. Um, or if she was like, you know, it's an exam day, so you should wear a tie because it should be a kind of celebration of your knowledge. I was like, that is crazy. She's like, that's what we do in Leuven, so that's what we're doing here. I was like, okay, I'll sign up for that as well. But also, like, she asked you questions about, like, what, what, do, you, what do you want to do with your life? Or um, how is this particular study pertinent to your flourishing? I don't know that she put it in exactly those terms, but she'd seek us out. She'd have, she'd have meetings with us. Um, and she was always posing to us questions that were very you know, personal and existential. And she taught with a great passion because she actually cared and she wanted to communicate not only the content, but she wanted to communicate the passion. Um, and I think <clears throat> I subsequently, you know, a couple of years later came across, across that text from um, Paul VI, Evangelii Nutziandi, where he says the modern world is in need of witnesses, right? And if it, if it listens to teachers, it's precisely because they are witnesses. So there was a sense that she was gesturing or indicating or pointing to something bigger and better and more beautiful that really captivated our attention. So yeah, there's something about that. I, I don't know that I have quite the vocabulary for it. Perhaps you have a better way of describing it. I could just add on to that and say that, you know, unlike that quote, which is uh, wrongly attributed to Francis of Assisi ad nauseum, preach without words, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> St. John Baptist de La Salle actually said, your faith should be a shining light for those whom you teach. Mm. It should be a shining light for those whom you teach. And just to prove that it's a real thing, he wrote that in his meditation for the feast day of St. Luke the Evangelist. Okay, so you mm. can go find that, unlike those words of St. Francis, which he almost surely never said. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but it's true that uh, it's true that the best teachers, the best teachers embody something. As you were talking about, what is it, gaming? Gaming. Okay. As you were talking about gaming, I was thinking of the experience I had studying for comps at the House of Studies, mm -hmm. where you're just immersed in this action with a few people, if you chose to study collaboratively, um, where you're just immersed in this action with a few people pursuing the same goal. And even that at that time, um, I remember connecting that experience of studying for comps with St. Augustine's experience of living that, living that kind of monastic life um, that he recounts in the Confessions. It's just so all-encompassing. Um, the, best, the best teachers are able to give you so much more than just facts in the classroom. I mean, wisdom itself is deeper than that, but, but you use the word existential. You know, there has to be something about the, the meaning of my existence that's at stake here. 
because all knowledge, if it's truly knowledge and it's really the truth, um, is taken into you and you make it your own, right? That's why we do. That's why Aquinas would even ask a question: Is it possible to teach someone something? Yeah. Uh, but I think that I think that uh, that's at the root of that, that kind of deep level of reality has to be at the root of uh, good teaching. So here's a follow-up question. I suspect that a handful of people listening are themselves teachers, or they have a part of their life in which they're teaching, whether, again, faith formation or a Bible study or instructing their children in the rudiments of the faith. Um, and we all want to be better teachers, right? We want to stink less at teaching. <laughs> um, and I think that the kind of reflex that a lot of us have is in order to be a good teacher, you need to know everything. You need to know all the things. But then a lot of us have the experience where we don't know all the things and it can be frustrating because you feel like the right answer, uh, you know, it's just, it's not ready at hand and it can be embarrassing when people ask probing questions that you're not ready for. So what are like, practically speaking, what are ways in which one can become a better teacher apart from knowing all the things, having a life of study and cultivating intellectual habits? Right. Well, as I, as I was thinking about father, you know, uh, collecting my thoughts that I was going to say in the episode um, today, as I was thinking about Father Fabian, you know, uh, again, one of the things he gave us was principles, mm. these fundaments which could be applied over and over and over again. He was equipping us with the tools necessary for philosophical engagement. You know, if you, if you know these three or four things and put them together in this way, you'll be able to go quite the distance as a Thomist. Mm. Um, and he was right. Uh, so I think that teachers who are able to give principles um, not principals who run schools, but teachers <laughs> who are able to give principles um, are, are able to offer something very profound because they equip a student for engagement. Um, I think the best teachers also have the ability, um, have the ability to survey topics. And I'm using survey in the ten, in, in the same way that you use it as a land surveyor. Someone, someone who can look at the horizon and notice the distinguishing features of it and speak to those. So the best teacher is someone who can look not at every detailed thing necessarily, but can look across a whole view as, you know, as far as can be seen, it can say something about it. Um, so I, so I, th I think the best teachers can give principles and I think the best teachers have a sense of surveying. Yeah. I think something too is um, that you can afford, a teacher can afford to be more confident than he or she might feel. So practical example is sometimes when I'm teaching, I realize that my argumentation isn't perfect or it's not airtight, or perhaps that I ought to have cut something out or included something further. And I get embarrassed by that. And then my face gets flushed, my face gets red, and then people can tell that I'm embarrassed. And then it's like a kind of self-defeating death spiral. But truth be <laughs> told... <laughs> that's awesome they would never have noticed had i not flagged it myself i was gonna say, yeah. gonna say now everyone who goes to hear you give a lecture will know yeah exactly yeah cheers that's for you say, there that's it is, the beginning of the death spiral <laughs> actually um, doing it curious. yeah exactly can't flush. tell but i am actually flush <laughs> um but the thing is like one people wouldn't notice ordinarily and two i don't think they really care too terribly much right i think that we hold ourselves to a standard which is uh, beyond what is ordinary or beyond what is realistic. And that's not to say like being a perfectionist is a bad thing. It's good to want to improve the quality of your work, but you also have to be satisfied with the things that come out of your mouth because they are the things that came out of your mouth. 
And um, that's not to say we get content or slothful and don't make the adequate preparation. But, but what you have said is what you've said. And you can stand to be confident. And now I'm thinking too of, um, I work for the Thomistic Institute. We just launched this program called Aquinas 101. And with each lesson comes the option to ask a friar follow-up questions, which is fascinating because that friar is me. So I've been writing a lot of emails recently. <laughs> uh, and somebody asked me, like, I, I teach... Yeah, exactly. I, I teach in a public charter school and I'm beginning to despair of the whole thing because I can't bring God into the equation. And I just don't think that this is the best realization of my potential as a teacher. And I said a couple of things, you know, like your life is in your hands and you should feel confident in whatever choice you make, but also like don't underestimate. As, as that's true. So yeah, exactly. Love God and do what you will. Um, don't est- underestimate like the power of your baptismal graces Right. Mm. So especially as a lay person, your job, your vocation is to make this present evil age holy, to give testimony to the grace of God at work in your life and to afford others an opportunity uh, to like recognize that uh, relationship that you have with the Lord and to want it. And I think that that can be present even in very secular settings. Um, so, so part of teaching is just, is just showing up and loving the Lord. Um, and I think we can't underestimate the real power that a believing Christian can exert uh, in these situations because yeah, truth be told, things are pretty, yeah, things are pretty difficult. Um, and any like gleam of hope or shimmer of hope, uh, can be very encouraging for those who otherwise don't have access to it. I think the, I think the best teachers are compassionate and the, and that being a, being, being compassionate means not just suffering with someone, right. But, but, but really understanding all of the, all the, all of the particularities of any given situation and entering into it. And so it doesn't need to be explicitly explicitly Christian in that sense to give meaning to a Christian's vocation as his or her job. Um, I agree with everything that you just said. Yeah. Well, Father Patrick, we're coming about to the end of our time. I don't know if there's uh, a parting thought or a final kind of pearl of wisdom that you were hoping might come up and you'd like to toss, as it were. I do have one, actually. Yes. That's a great quote. Send it. St. Augustine. Augustine um, was convinced eventually to become a Christian because of St. Ambrose and St. Ambrose's brilliant exposition of the Bible. Do you know how he describes St. Ambrose in his confessions? I do not. He says, he was like a father to me. Mm-hmm. He was like a father to me about his great teacher. So I think there's something, there's something essential about, um, there's something essential about that aspect of who Ambrose was that allowed him to convince Augustine of the whole truth of the gospel. Excellent. That is beautiful. And uh, we will round out the scoring with that thought. So thanks so much for joining us this time on God's planning. We look forward to seeing you the next time. All the best until then. Cheers. Thanks for listening to God's planning, a work of the Dominican friars of the province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.